So tonight, as we finish out the life of Abraham, which we've looked at the entirety of the semester, we come to this story. And this is perhaps the most difficult story in the life of Abraham. And as we look at this together, I want us to see two things. First, I want us to see the identity of God. How does God reveal himself in this passage? And second, I want us to look at the faith of Abraham and then see how they intersect. So first, the identity of God. What we see in this, in this passage is that God reveals himself in two ways. First, in verse 1, he is the God who tests Abraham. Like this is how, how this begins. After these things, God tested Abraham and called to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And then verse 14, we're told that he is the God who provides for Abraham. Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. And it's said to this day on this mount, the Lord, it shall be provided. That God is the one who provided. And at the beginning of the story, God is a tester. At the end of the story, God is a provider. And these two statements about God form the frame for this story. And this is a contradiction that the one who tests who requires Abraham to sacrifice his son is also the one who provides, the one who provides a substitute. Martin Luther, the great 16th century pastor, wrote that this is a contradiction with which God contradicts himself. God as tester and God as provider. John Calvin said about this passage that the command of God and the promise of God are in conflict here. Why is this? I want you to remember with me God promised Abraham that he would have offspring and that through his offspring, God would save the world. And most of Abraham's life with God is spent waiting on God for this promise. And then at last, when he's 100 years old, God gives him Isaac. And here in verse 2, Isaac is called the beloved of Abraham. That's the first time this word is used in the whole Bible. Isaac is precious to Abraham as his only son and as the fulfilled promise of God. The promise of God is that through Isaac, God will save the world. But then the commandment of God is that Isaac must be killed. And if we let ourselves enter the story, if we allow ourselves to see and to feel this story, we, we see what this means. The fire, the knife, the wood, the rope, Abraham's faithful obedience, Isaac's silent submission. If Isaac is killed, then there are no descendants. There's, there's no future. The entire story of Abraham is for nothing. This is a return to barrenness. One commentator writes, and speaking to preachers, he writes, the preacher must take care not to explain this away, for this cannot be explained. Without explanation, this text leads us to face the reality that God is God. And these two marks of God are always found together, both the high promise and the dark command the provision, and the test. It is found on, on Job's lips. As God removed all the blessings he had in his life, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's found on Mount Sinai. As God gave the Ten Commandments to his people, out of the smoke and fire of the mountain, he said, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt. The promise. You shall have no gods before me. Which is the test. This is how God is with his people. And I know this is difficult, especially for those of us who want God to be reasonable. But this text does not flinch before or pause at the unreasonableness of God. Because God is not an idea. 
He's not a logical premise, which must follow rational consistency. No, as the psalmist says, God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And this narrative doesn't let us choose between those two. It doesn't let us choose between the testing and the providing. And this is the great mystery of God, that at the center of who he is with his people is this contradiction. He gives and he takes away. He tests and he provides. He kills and he brings to life. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with he who is contrite and, and lowly, or he who is repentant and humble, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the repentant. The God who demands allegiance from all of his creatures is the God who stoops to be with the lowly and the contrite. And we see this most clearly where we see all beautiful things in Jesus Christ, who in his teaching said, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Who, when he spoke to his disciples about the work he was going to do, he spoke of his crucifixion and his resurrection as the ultimate test and the ultimate provision of God. Jesus refused to separate these two. The cross and the empty tomb cannot, empty tomb cannot be separated. These two together, the giving of Jesus' life and the receiving of new life are the fullness of God's revelation. And I want you to see this. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of the testing of God. Like Abraham, Jesus was tested. The night before he went to the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood as he faced the ultimate choice. Jesus could have summoned an army of angels and been, and been carried away to heaven. But instead, he submitted to his Father and he prayed, Not my will, but thy will be done. For the work of rescuing his people from his future judgment was far more precious to him than his own safety. In the garden that night, Jesus chose to trust only the promise. For on the cross, in his final hour, instead of hearing Abraham, Abraham, and the horrible nightmare being ended, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, and was answered with silence. And he gave up his life. Jesus Christ, the true son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of the promise, was obedient to the awful testing of God. And just as Good Friday speaks fully to the testing of God, Easter Sunday announces, without qualification or asterisks, God's ultimate providing. The resurrection is the miracle by which God provides new life where only death was expected. Hebrews 11 says this about this passage. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he received him back. And here's what this is saying. Hebrews 11 is saying that resurrection is how God keeps his promise. Real faith, Christian faith, is nothing other than trust in the God of resurrection in the face of every deathly circumstance. Abraham knew beyond understanding that God would find a way to bring life even in this scenario of death. That was the faith of Abraham. And that's why God provided the ram at the last moment. Abraham didn't have plan B in his back pocket. 
He didn't lead the ram up the mountain with him. His posture as he walked that mountain with his son loaded down with the wood. His posture was open-handed, thy will be done. Open-handed as he walked up that mountain. The substitute wasn't brought by Abram, but it was provided by God and his grace. Abraham's faith was faith in the God of resurrection. And this is what the life of faith looks like. It looks like trust in the God of resurrection. Just a question for you to consider tonight. Is that what your faith looks like? Is that what you think faith is supposed to look like? I think that often we let each other get away with lots of counterfeits for faith. And I think often our non-Christian neighbors can look at Christians and assume that the faith we claim is something other than this open-handed, thy will be done trust in the God of testing and provision. So what are the counterfeits? What are the fake faiths that we see in ourselves and we see in one another, that we let ourselves and we let one another get away with? We talked about this as a staff, and here's a few that, that we came up with. Um, one is enthusiasm or positivity, that being a Christian is about being positive. And this says that real Christian faith is being an extrovert or always being on or being enthusiastic or being eternally positive. Another one that we see is morality. And this is when we think that being a Christian is about being good, that having real faith is about being good. If I'm good, then I'll get what I want, that my motives don't really matter. It's about being good to others. Or strength, that being a Christian is about being strong. Ellis calls this being a Teflon human, being a Teflon human, unfazed by the difficulties of life. You know what this is like. You see the girl who is really good at caring for others but shows no weakness, and then her life falls apart, and it's as if she had a split life. It could create this idea of what a Christian is, someone who puts on the Teflon armor, nothing sticks to them, and be unaffected because they're able to walk around with a smile on their face and always say that Jesus is the best. And all of these are counterfeits because they try to claim the provision without the test. Easter Sunday without Good Friday, empty tomb without the cross, resurrection without crucifixion, glory without suffering. And we always want one without the other. Sometimes in our bitterness or in our despair, we want a God who tests, but we refuse his generous provision. We just want to receive the hard thing and we're unwilling to extend our hand to receive the good from him. But most of the time, I think we want a God who provides, but not a God who tests. We, we want the good um, without the sorrow. We want the resurrection without the crucifixion, Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And some, in their cynicism, actually regard both of these as silly. And they discard the idea of a God who both demands and gives freely. But to all of us, to us who want to have one without the other, whether tonight you are wallowing in your cynicism or you're refusing to acknowledge the brokenness and loss in your own life, and to those who are spiritually careless and haven't paid attention to either, to all of us, God reveals himself in this paradox. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And when he does return, the question that will be put to us is the question of his death and resurrection and how we made sense of our own lives in light of his. For the cross and the empty tomb show us that you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. The cross and the empty tomb show us that we are far worse sinners than we ever imagined. But in Christ, 
You are far more loved than you ever dared hope. So what does this have to do with Abraham? Well, do you remember what Abraham's name means? When God first called Abraham, his name was Abram, which means father, which was ironic because when God first met Abraham or met, first made Ab Abram, he was 70 year old and he had no kids. And God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, great father. What does this mean? It means that Abraham can't be Abraham without God being God. In order for Abraham to be the father of the faith, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ and the spiritual father of all who believe, he had to trust the God who raises the dead. Because the Christian faith is not about your lineage or your pedigree. It's not about what you can do or who you know or what you've read or what you can achieve. It's not even about how much faith you have. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of the object of your faith. It's like a trust fall. It doesn't matter how good you are at falling. It matters if the person catching you is strong and if they're paying attention. The same is true of faith. It's not about how strong you believe. It's about trust falling into the open arms of the one who raises the dead. And the God of the Bible demands total allegiance. He requires us to walk with open hands with everything that he gives us, especially that which is most precious to our hearts. The prayer of the Christian in all of life is the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thy will be done. And the offer that he makes to you in the gospel is that when you hook your faith up to him, when you trust fall into the crucified arms of Jesus Christ, when you step out in faith like Abraham and you open your hands with that which is most precious to you, and you trust him with the deep longings of your heart, not with closed fists, demanding that he gives you what you want, but open hands, submitting your sin and your guilt and your shame, submitting your plans and your desires and your longings to him, he will provide. Because submitting to his test, handing over that which is most precious, it feels like death. But he is the God who raises the dead. Friends, if you hear one thing from me tonight, I want you to hear this. Jesus Christ was put to the ultimate test on the cross for you so that he might give you the ultimate provision in his resurrection. I read this morning um, that they have renamed your generation. Uh, you are now Generation C. I don't know if you all have read this, because the coronavirus and its aftermath will profoundly shape your lives as you enter adulthood. And we don't know what the next few months hold. We don't know what the next few years hold, but here's what we do now. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that is all that we need. Christ is risen. This past weekend was by far the strangest Easter weekend that any of us have ever experienced. But Easter this year remind me, reminded me of the Grinch who stole Christmas. The Grinch who stole, you know the story, he stole everything that he thought Christmas was about. And on Christmas morning, he discovered all the Who's down in Whoville had something that he could not touch. They had a living hope. They had something hidden away from thieves and moss and rust and friends. Jesus Christ is our living hope. He is risen and he is in heaven and he is the God who raises the dead. And no one can take that hope away from you. The tomb is empty. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And so wherever that hits you tonight, whatever in your life feels like a test, whatever your life feels like this this something's being called forth for you to open your hands. Know that the God 
who opens our hands is the God who gives more graciously and abundantly than we can ever imagine. That the God of the cross is the God of the resurrection. That we have this sure and certain hope in the one who raises the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you for what you tell us in your word. We thank you for the story of Abraham and this crazy story in Genesis 22. And that you reveal yourself, Father, as the God who tests and the God who provides, and you show us that most clearly in Jesus. We thank you that he went to the cross for us and that he was raised from the dead for us and is seated in heaven with you where he reigns and glory. Lord, I pray for my friends, and I pray that you would help them. Um, Lord, however they're struggling tonight, help them to receive this word from you. And Lord, would you give them your hope? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.